Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So last week we spoke about setting up healthy meals for our children and families. And I wanted to do a little housekeeping with this and just give you a check-in. Uh, you find this kind of hilarious. Firstly, I tried to take our own advice and make something really healthy and basic and actually really affordable. I had some peas and I thought, you know what? Split pea soup. That's got to be a healthy choice for everyone. Judith, I was sort of inspired by your call for making healthy soup. It was really delicious. I had some fresh garlic, as I noted, from my neighbor's garden. It was really, really tasty. Uh, my son was like really impressed. He thought it was so good. I added some spices, but the feedback I got from two of the daughters was the first one said it looked like, shall we say, baby vomit and <laughs> refused to eat it. And the second one compared it to something that the dog would do. So I tried. I thought it was really delicious. I thought it was a really great idea to like throw everything in a pot and as we talked about last time, it was just easy to kind of let it sit there as I graded papers and had class. It was really cheap, too, because the bag of peas were, you know, only like $1.49 or something like that. Secondly, though, and adjacent to all this conversation about eating healthy and keeping our fridge stock, right after we recorded that session, my refrigerator, I noticed, was set at about 60 degrees and would not go down. Oh. So <laughs> my refrigerator is broken. We do know it's just one part that we need, but I basically had to clear everything out. And all the healthy foods I had, including healthy proteins, I had to get rid of because they started to, you know, smell funky. So anyway, that was just a quick report, trying to put everything we talked about last week into practice with some buy-in from the family. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think I'll just keep trying, like we said. So, Judith, why don't you take it away today? Sure. Yeah. Pea soup, actually, I'll comment on that real quickly. It has been a staple at my house for a really long time. And my kids just recently started refusing it. So it's, uh, you know, it's a challenge. It's an ongoing, uh, an ongoing challenge. So today we're going to do something a little bit differently. We're going to take our discussion in a different direction. We're very, very excited to introduce another guest today. We are joined by Danielle Hutchison, who is a postdoc at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Danielle holds a PhD in chemistry, and she is also the mother of a young son. Danielle reached out to us after one of the first episodes had aired. We're so happy to hear that our conversations that we're having here on the podcast are resonating across disciplines. And so we were really excited to hear more about her journey in the sciences. We've been kind of emailing back and forth a little bit with her. And so we're really excited that she's here today. So Danielle, first of all, thank you again for reaching out to us and for supporting the podcast. And then especially thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to find your podcast and I'm very excited to get to talk with you today as well. Yeah, we're really excited to have you as well, because we know we're always kind of coming from this humanities perspective. And that was kind of the first thing we wanted to ask you about. Now, in our program, we had about two years of coursework. Then we had a year of exams. We had a qualifying exam, which was interesting, where we read maybe, you know, 50, 60, 70 novels, had a nice little discussion and oral <laughs> examination. It's a good time. And we also had to have a written examination as part of that. And then about six months later, ideally, we would have our prospectus examination. And that's where we sort of argued our case for the project we wanted to do for our dissertation. Then we got into dissertation writing time, however long that ends up being. 
<clears throat> for some of us a little bit longer than others. That was always my thing. It's like some people get done so fast and I'm amazed and impressed. But that's how it went in our department, which was the English department. Is it pretty similar in the sciences? And if so, or if not, can you walk us through your program? And then how does like data collection and lab work fit in all this as well? Yeah, sure. So I think the main structure of the PhD program is pretty similar throughout all of the disciplines, at least from the people that I've talked to. There does seem to be a lot of variability in like specific requirements and exams and stuff at different universities. And like in my case, even like within the same department in the university. For me personally, I we didn't have anything like a prospectus exam. I had an oral qualifying exam and the dissertation defense. For some programs, they do require cumulative exams, which are written exams and basically covering a variety of topics related to your field of study. Uh, one thing that I do want to note that's different, at least based on what you talked about in previous episodes. So to my knowledge, all PhD programs in the physical sciences are fully funded for usually about six years. And it's generally expected that students will complete all of their degree requirements within those six years. They're also year-round appointments. So we work full 12 months. We also get full tuition remission and a small stipend. And the funding for your, your stipend either comes um, in the form of working for the university as a teaching assistant, or if your advisor has grant money, you can be funded on a research assistantship, which means you don't have to teach. Additionally, master's degrees are not required to apply for PhD programs in the sciences. And so a lot of students just go straight to the PhD program right after their bachelor's. Erin, I don't know if you remember how that was at Wayne. I do believe that we had both paths were open. Like there was a way to come in with a bachelor, but it was also possible to come in with with a master's degree. And I don't remember if there was like a specific preference. I just know that I had a master's degree when I came in uh, and you did too, didn't you, Erin? I did as well. And I know that one of our other guests, Elisa, actually did come in right out of BA. And I was always really impressed by that because I feel like that is just so amazing to go from the undergraduate world right up into PhD program. I find that to be a little daunting, to be honest, but I needed the MA to sort of help me rough out the edges of my study habits and things like that. But we did have a few people who did come in right after the four-year degree. And I think that's really smart. I didn't actually realize or know about that path. But it is something that was available to us for sure. Yes. Well, and another thing, too, is that the master's programs for the sciences are not funded. You would have to pay for that on your own, which is another reason why a lot of students just bypass the master's altogether. Yeah, that's really smart. (laughs) I think I owe a cool, um, I want to say 70,000 for my master's program, which is just really depressing and I try not to think about. But I wasn't funded and I needed it because, like I said, I wasn't a stellar BA student. So I needed to kind of prove my value and worth and get the four point at the master's level to show that I could do that work. But the payment, it's a little overwhelming to say the least. So that is a really smart idea, Danielle. That's really good. Yeah. (laughs) So for my grad school experience, we were on a trimester schedule. So we had three 10 week trimesters instead of the two like 14 week semesters. And I had to take a total of, I think, seven courses, uh, which I split up in between the first two years. Mostly there were you know, a number of courses that were required for all chemistry students. But then there were several electives. And I kind of had to strategically plan that because just once you get to be so specialized, like the classes that are actually relevant to your research are kind of few and far between. So 
I, I took most of the, the core classes during my first year. And then I took a couple of electives during the second year to finish everything up. And I was a teaching assistant for my first year. And I taught general chemistry, both uh, recitation, which is basically just like an extra class session where students can come and ask questions uh, without a lecture, and then the lab. And after my first year, during that first summer was really when I got started making progress in the lab. And then after that, I was funded as a research assistant. So from then on, I didn't have to do any more teaching. And I just spent most of my time on classes and lab work. And I took my oral qualifying exam at the end of my third year. And at the time, I was actually about six weeks pregnant and incredibly nauseous, but I hadn't told anyone that I was pregnant yet. So that made for a slightly more stressful exam experience. Oh my gosh, right. Uh, Because you're already kind of feeling a little nerves anyway. And it's interesting. I think I was pregnant during my prospectus. And in some ways, I was already nervous anyway. But to have that extra layer of nausea Mm -hmm. sounds absolutely awful. Yeah, I actually didn't realize that it was morning sickness at the time. I just thought it was being nauseous from nerves. And then it just didn't go away for another two months. So Then my son was born during my fourth year of grad school, which actually worked out pretty well because I had already completed most of the lab experiments and data collection at that time. So all I had left to do was, I I had a few experiments left, but mostly I was just analyzing data and publishing. And I was able to use my peer-reviewed publications as chapters for my dissertation, so that saved me a lot of time uh, with writing. I just had to write uh, kind of a general introduction and conclusion that encompassed all of the papers that I had published. And so I'd say it took me probably about four months or so to write the dissertation. And then I was able to defend uh, this past December of 2019. And my son was nine months old at the time. Well, congratulations. That's just awesome. And it does sound like a really different experience than what we've talked about, because mm-hmm. I just it sounds like you're front loading a lot of the work ahead of time. And that sounds really different than kind of my long meandering writing. But that sounds really, <laughs> really different. So I'm so glad we're having you on here to kind of think about these differences. I was just curious about like how you choose a PhD advisor. So in the sciences, each professor kind of has their own unique research specialty. And most students end up choosing their advisor based on whichever one's research interests align most closely with their own. So they kind of assign you a project within their specialty and you that's what you do for your dissertation. Like you pretty much know what you're doing right from the get-go. It sounds like that. I was actually going to ask about that earlier, whether you are sort of already going into the program knowing what kinds of research you're doing. It sounds like you were doing like lab research while you were also doing your coursework. Mm-hmm. Did I, yep. d- is that right? Okay. Erin, yep. I don't know what, how that process went for you, but I do feel that in general, the the general system is very similar where you know, you take your courses and you, you kind of get a feel for how you jive with each of the professors that are teaching the classes. I think, you know, you were mentioning that once you get to that specialized stage, it can be limited in terms of what's being offered. And I think that was the same. That's the same in our field, especially depending on the size of the department. Uh, So if you have a limited number of professors that are teaching graduate courses, then obviously you have to sort of go with you're bound by what they offer and they usually teach in their own specialty. And within that, then, you know, you go through this process of, for me, it was uh, looking at what kind of feedback I was getting on my seminar papers um, and then kind of figuring out it was subject matter and that feedback to kind of figure out who I would most 
likely want to work with for an extended period of time. And then you sort of have to have that awkward conversation. That's like almost like asking somebody out on a date (laughs) where you have to go in and, you know, like, will you be my advisor? I remember that that was like really terrifying and awkward. And our, our advisor kind of made you work for it too. Like you, she, you know, you had to sort of justify what, why you thought it was a good match and you had to kind of talk about what the anticipated project was even though that changed for me afterwards but that's how my process went I don't know Aaron do you have a specific recollection of how you went about this well we actually do have the same advisor and I think part of what led me to her were the same reasons that you're talking about she also looking at her body of research had the most to think about women women's writing gender sexuality and like you said it was really divided into different sort of groups and cohorts of professors. And so I knew I wasn't pursuing linguistics. So none of those people were going to be possible advisors. I wasn't pursuing composition or rhetoric. So that left us with literary folks. And really, there were three. And I just thought that our our advisor that we chose ended up being the best fit for me based on her research. I think it's important to have that good relationship and feel like you have a decent working relationship with the person. Because in my case, I did spend a long time with her. And she knows a lot about me. I mean, both about my work and my work ethic, but also my life and my children. And so I'm glad, I'm so glad I chose her because I felt comfortable sharing that with her. I'll also be honest, I really wanted to work with a woman because I just don't always feel as comfortable working with an older male for a variety of reasons, because I've had some bad experiences in the past with a older male editor that I worked for as an intern. I was young and I didn't know how to deal with his inappropriate comments. So gender did really play a role in my decision making as well. I'm just I'm being completely honest with that. I think the same holds true for me, even though, again, I would tie that back to the research as well. I think I talked about this before on the on the podcast that my the direction that I took in my dissertation was based on a class that she had taught in the past. And so I would agree with that to say that gender did play a role for me, but mostly based in the the common research interest and that that she had sort of the strongest emphasis on gender and sexuality studies. So, uh, Danielle, just to kind of uh, hand the reins back to you again a little bit, mm-hmm. you you already talked a little bit about, you know, when your son was born. I would love to hear more about how that affected the way that you were able to do or that you did your work, um, how you structured your day and your week. Uh, you mentioned in your emails a couple of times that you made a point to treat grad school as a nine to five job. And I remember getting that advice at one of the workshops that we had. And that was one of the things that I heard at one of those workshops that resonated with me the most and stuck with me the most. So mm-hmm. I've also always tried to do that. Um, tell us a little bit more about how you did that and to what degree you were able to keep that up once your son was born. Yeah. So pretty much once I was done teaching that, lightened my load a lot. So then I, d- I didn't really have to do any work after after I came home, uh, unless I had, you know, a, a big presentation or a project or something coming up. Um, but I tried to get as much as I could done, you know, within those business hours that I was in the office, in the lab and working. And I think a big part of my motivation in trying to do that was just because in college, I, you know, I was taking a really heavy course load with tons of science classes. And there was just always 
this endless pile of homework. And I just, I got so burned out. And I said, you know, if I'm going to go to grad school, I, I can't keep doing that because I was just so unhappy in college. I actually took a, a gap year in between my bachelor's and starting the PhD program because I was just so burned out. And then it, it really kind of helped me refocus and decide that yes, grad school was the path that I did want to take. So I think that that was good. Yeah. So when I was pregnant, I I pretty much kept everything the same as I had uh, before getting pregnant. The the chemicals that I work with in the lab are relatively non toxic, so I was able to continue working throughout my entire pregnancy. I actually continued going to work up until the day before I went into labor. We had a really great grad student union. And so they had uh, negotiated for grad students to be able to take paid sick time. Um, and I was I had enough of that saved up uh, to cover seven of the eight weeks that I took for maternity leave. But at the same time, I was like the only woman in the department, at least in the, the four years that I was there, to actually like have a child while in grad school. So it took me several months to even figure out, you know, who I needed to talk to to arrange maternity leave and get everything all set up. Like everyone, my advisor, um, all the other students in our research group were super, super supportive and everything, but no one really knew what was going on and what I needed to do to, to figure everything out. But I did get it all figured out eventually, eight weeks off. Coming back was a bit of a challenge. That's always a question about processes for maternity leave, I feel like. Mm -hmm. I had the same thing happen at my job now because I had the third baby while I was working at a publisher. And so they hadn't had a whole lot of people go out on maternity leave before. And so there was never a question, you know, of course, like they have a maternity leave policy and, you know, I had access to, you know, the leave. But there was a question of like, OK, what's happening with the work that you usually do and how does that get redone? distributed. And I feel like a lot of times when you're a teaching assistant or you're teaching classes, there's the same sort of question of, of course, you, you know, nobody wants you not to go on maternity leave. But what are we going to how are we going to cover those like six or eight weeks in the classroom? Like who's going to take that mm -hmm. over? So I do think that that's always um, a negotiation that people have to figure out. Just factually speaking, like I'm not like evaluating that in any way it's just an issue that needs to be solved and if you're the first one in your department and you're blazing trails if you will then you know people can start with saying of course you're going to go on maternity leave but what are we going to do with the work that you usually do and you said mm -hmm. you had a little bit you struggled a little bit after coming back from your your maternity leave and eight weeks I think is a really short time uh yeah. to, to be out so what were some of the struggles that you faced when you came back uh just going back to you know while I was on maternity leave I I guess I had the advantage in that my research project was pretty independent so I wasn't like letting anyone down or anything by not being there. It was all just pretty much on me. So everything just kind of took a pause while I was gone. But yeah, coming back, it was also, you know, my, my son's first time at daycare and just trying to get back into that mindset of, you know, I need to think about work now and trying to get focused and remember what I was doing, you know, a few months ago. Yeah. And that was all a challenge. And also I was breastfeeding and trying to figure out when to take breaks to pump and where to pump and all of that kind of stuff was really challenging as well. So what were some of the solutions that were found there for you? Are you willing to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, so uh, we actually did have access to some really nice lactation rooms, and I was able to get set up with one of those. As far as trying to schedule things, I just had to uh, think a little bit more ahead in terms of planning and, you know, when I was going to set up experiments so that I could be free at the times that I needed to go pump and uh, try to plan that around meetings and stuff as well. And eventually, I think I just did kind of, you know, get back into the routine of going to work and kind of naturally fell back into that. Yeah, I struggled with the same thing when I came back from maternity leave, just to like remember what all the tasks were that I had to do and where everything is located and what all the folders are and things like that. It takes a while to just Mm -hmm. remember all of those things. Yeah, for me, you know, I came back from my maternity leave earlier this year. I was back for, I want to say like maybe four or five weeks. I was just getting back into the swing of things. And then we were, we were temporarily suspended all operations for Mm -hmm. I want to say like three or four months and so then which was really lucky for me because I got to have that extra time with the baby at home but it meant that I basically had been out almost for six or seven months and then coming back after that I it was the same sort of challenge of I've not done any of this in seven months where is everything and and my I mean my colleagues were reporting the same thing after furlough so we've talked a lot on this podcast too about the need to move across country in the academy and it sounds like looking at your resume that you moved from Oregon where you went to grad school right to Indiana Mm -hmm. just before the pandemic so can you talk a little bit about how that decision came about was that a difficult decision to make and how did your partner's career fit into that making the decision to move wasn't it wasn't really difficult because my husband and I are both actually from the western New York area and that's where pretty much all of our family still is So we were the only ones out on the West Coast when we lived in Oregon. So we really loved living there, but we also wanted to be closer to family uh, just so our son can, you know, spend more time with his grandparents and other extended family. And so we're, we're about a seven hour drive now from where my family lives compared to, you know, an all day cross country flight. So that's definitely nicer, although we haven't really had any family gatherings since we've been here. We ha- we, ha- we did have a birthday party for my son just before the pandemic, which was really nice. Um, but, you know, we've basically just it's not any different than if we had been on the other side of the country uh, since we can't travel or anything. So um, as far as my husband's career, he's actually the reason why we ended up on the West Coast. So he was in the military and he got stationed in Washington State. So we first moved there after I graduated from college, and then I worked as a nanny there for a year and then decided to go to grad school, and that's uh, when we moved to Oregon. Actually, he was still in the military when I started grad school for like the first two and a half years, and he was stationed still in Washington, which was about four hours away from where I was in Oregon, and he was also deployed for a good section of that time as well. So the first couple years were kind of a challenge in that sense just with the separation. But now he, he's been out of the military for a few years now, and he's just been working retail. Uh, so his career was pretty easy to, to move. He just transferred to a different location within the same chain. So that wasn't a, a big issue there. Yeah, that's really great. I think that 
spousal or partner support can be really key for this because even something like doing the podcast or teaching class now, we have really, I think in academia, at least when I'm teaching, it's hard to predict what my schedule is going to look like from year to year or semester to semester. And I think it's just so key if you are living with a partner, it's really helpful if they're kind of able to have some flexibility with their job. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're getting some good support. So that's that's pretty awesome. Just to backtrack, I could relate to your story about being pregnant and then kind of that short maternity leap right. that was relatable as well. So you did you wanted to sort of shift directions as well and talk a little bit about the most you wrote <laughs> dreaded question. What is that dreaded question? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, you know, you already alluded to this a little bit too, how COVID has impacted both your research in terms of like the lab work that you're doing and the writing that you need to be doing at home. So that might require telling us a little bit more about what your postdoc looks like, but then also your access to childcare. How have you been able to navigate those challenges and what has that meant for you, especially with having moved to a new place right before the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just started my postdoc here in January. And so I was, you know, just kind of getting settled and just starting in on a project when everything got shut down in March. And so I, I didn't really have a lot of stuff to do from home. You know, a lot of times I would have, you know, during my PhD, I would have, you know, a pile of collected data that I need to analyze or a manuscript I need to write up or whatever. But in this case, I didn't really have a whole lot to work on. And I also uh, was just keeping my son at home. So and it was just me. My husband was still working outside the home during the lockdown. So I was not very productive. Uh, I didn't really have a lot to work on anyway. I did finish up one manuscript that was left from my PhD. Um, I spent some time working on that. Uh, so my my postdoc research has kind of been delayed. Um, I really only got started in it when we were able to go back into the lab in June. Um, so we're, we're making progress on, on it now. But yeah, there was definitely a big gap in the this first year of my postdoc where not really very much was accomplished. In terms of childcare, again, my son was going to daycare before before the pandemic. And then once we got sent into lockdown, his daycare stayed open, but I just chose to keep him home um, just for, you know, his health and safety. And then we went back to the lab in June and I sent him back to daycare, uh, but it has not been a really great situation. Unfortunately, the director at his daycare does not seem to be taking the pandemic seriously and they're not taking as many precautions as they should be. So we're in the process of finding new childcare arrangements, which is difficult in the best of times. So that's been a a major challenge lately. Yeah, that all sounds very challenging. And you're sort of talking about how the pandemic has put maybe a hold on your work. And that's really relatable too, right? Even though we have our computers and our work and our manuscripts, I really struggled with trying to keep my writing tasks on schedule. I just found it really hard trying to focus when I'm in a house full of people and also not connecting mm -hmm. with my colleagues. And that's why I was so glad, again, for this podcast, because it allows me to kind of keep a pulse on like everything that's that we're thinking about in the field. And I think that's really important. And so that childcare, oh, I 
I know exactly what you mean. Um, my kids are all back at school and we've talked about this a little bit, but just, you know, they're supposed to be six feet apart. I saw there was, I don't know what kind of tomfoolery was happening this morning, but they were not the masks they're on, you know, they're on to some extent, but my daughters, my older ones are like kind of disgusted. They're like, mom, people are, they take them off to sneeze, which they think seems counterintuitive, um, and all that stuff. And so I just know our children are a priority and like finding them safe, accessible, Childcare is super important. And we've kind of talked a lot about already that some of us can rely on family, but not all of us can, right? You mentioned that it's a seven hour drive. So we have some other forms of a village, right? That sometimes, in, in some cases, we have coworkers or colleagues. But during this time, you know, you're already kind of maybe feeling disconnected a little bit. Do you have a good support network where you are now? Do you have any colleagues or coworkers or how are you approaching this since you've moved to Indiana so recently? Yeah, so actually here, there are a few other grad students in the research group that I work in that have children that are close in age to my son, which is really nice. Um, so a couple of times I've relied on them, you know, to, to have a play date. Uh, so I could, you know, go get some work done really quick. So that's that's definitely been a great support here. Again, we, we did move here so that we could be closer to family. And, you know, that hasn't exactly worked out. But I know I know that my family would love to, you know, make trips out here or vice versa. So hopefully, hopefully that will happen a little bit more often in the future. Yeah, eventually yeah. this has to be possible again, right? The, right. The, yeah, we just moved to Michigan last year, last summer, because we were a 10-hour 10, 10 drive away when we were in Maryland, and we just felt one of the reasons that we moved back was that we just felt it was too far. And now we're two hours away, and the kids are, you know, they're asking. They're like, why can't I go see, you know, that not that why mm -hmm. we moved up here? Why can't I go see my grandma? And we just have to kind of be like, it, you know, it will, it will. You just have to sit tight a little bit more. So hopefully... The seven hour drive seems, you know, doable. So hopefully you'll be able to to make use of that soon. Yeah, we're we're hoping we can we can travel to see them over the holidays. But part of part of it as well as working at a university, especially one that's open for in person instruction, is that they've put travel restrictions on employees as well. Right. So we're we're not allowed to travel more than like fifty miles. Um, oh, interesting. Although if we do travel, you know, outside of that distance. We either are required to isolate for two weeks or have a negative COVID test after coming back. Oh, interesting. Yeah, my son's daycare has pretty strict guidelines about that, too. They always ask after the weekends, like, did you travel or whatnot? And they require a like a self-quarantine, too, for I think they're doing 72 hours right now. Shouldn't it be two weeks then if you're going to make people isolate? But that's that's their role. And so, you know, I've had situations in the past where I was like over the summer when they were closed for multiple weeks at a time, I took my kids to see the grandparents a couple of times. But then I had to sort of like bring them back ahead of time enough to be able to do that like three day quarantine, which then mm -hmm. like lost me the child care coverage on the other end. So that's like a different like a difficult thing to navigate to. But I, we've just been st we've just been staying home now. We can't do those weekend trips and then um, and then isolate for three days after afterwards. So we haven't we haven't been able to do much traveling. But yeah, we're also hoping for the holidays to to be able to travel then. 
So now that you've moved to Indiana and and your partner has found work, what do you think your next steps are going to be? How long is your um, postdoc? Can you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of having a position like that? And then, you know, we've ta- we spent a little bit a couple of weeks ago talking about our job market in our field, which I think is pretty specific to the humanities. So if you could talk a little bit about what the job market is like in your field and then what your plans are for the, for the future after the postdoc runs out. Mm-hmm. So there's a few different uh, career paths, I guess, that you can take, um, at least in chemistry. So there's, of course, academia, and within that, you know, you can be a, a research professor or you could be like more of an, ex- an instructor. And then there are government labs, which are uh, national labs or military labs, basically just funded by the government, similar to research that's done in universities, uh, but there's no, no teaching requirement and less requirement for publications, I would say. And then there's also a chemical industry where, you know, it's just a private company and there's pretty much no publications involved in that. Uh, so those are those are the main career pathways. Of course, there are always, you know, alternative ways to use your skills and stuff. But I would say those are those are the main pathways that people take with a PhD in chemistry. Advantages and disadvantages of having a postdoc. So typically, in my experience, postdocs are usually about two years long. It usually starts out as a one-year appointment with the option to renew for a second year. And so I think the, that was the main disadvantage is that it's not a permanent position. An advantage, though, is that it's giving me an opportunity to learn new skills and participate in some new research that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do as a grad student. So that, that's definitely exciting. And it will help, you know, prepare me for a, a future permanent career. I have been considering seeing if I can extend my postdoc for a third year, actually, just because this first year... Like I I mentioned earlier, I didn't even really get started on anything until June, pretty much. So I feel like this first year has not been very productive in terms of of research. Um, So I've been considering extending for a third year and also just because, you know, just moving here and the thought of packing up and moving again gives me a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Making making that cross-country move uh, with a 10-month-old was was not a lot of fun, and I, I... I'm not looking forward to doing that again. Yeah, I, I'm actually hoping uh, to get a job in one of the, the government labs, either a national lab or a military lab, uh, mainly just because of my husband's connection to the military. I'd kind of like to use my, my skills and apply them in that area. So unfortunately, right now, a lot of places have a hiring freeze in place. So now is not really a great time to be looking for jobs. But I think probably, you know, maybe maybe in the spring, hopefully things will be looking better and I can start actually looking for a permanent position. Um, but that's kind of the the main thing that I am concerned about right now is just trying to get into that permanent position because, you know, we do want to, you know, buy a house and be settled and, you know, put down roots somewhere and not just constantly be moving from place to place. Right. I've talked about this a little bit. When I started, my my children were still quite young. And so at that point, I thought, oh, you know, if I get done with everything quick, I might do a postdoc, just kind of the adventure of it all. But when you're talking about the actual reality of moving with a toddler or maybe a two or three-year-old, that does sound really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of segues us into another question. Um, something you wrote to us about in your email was bringing your son on a conference excursion to an aquarium when, and there was like an informal conference dinner afterwards. You mm-hmm. said he was about six months old and the hit of the party and that you did travel with 
your son when you interviewed for the postdoc position last fall. And so yeah. you've flown with him from Oregon to Indiana. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I think sharing some of these stories can be really inspirational or helpful for other listeners and just to kind of maybe get into a little more detail. But that sounds just great because I've always thought that including my kids as much as possible in this journey is super important. I really want to set a good example for my son, but also my daughters just to see me at work. And I know the six year old or six month old memory might not be quite the same as, you know, something my six or seven year old experienced, but I just love that idea of being able to bring him along into your journey. So I'd love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, last summer, my advisor was the, the conference advisor for a, a conference that we were hosting at Oregon state. Uh, which is where I went to grad school. And so all of us in the research group were pretty involved in planning the conference and everything. And so, you know, with it being so convenient that it was right there, we didn't have to travel to the conference at all. One day, the conference, we took an excursion to the aquarium. And so I was able to bring him along for that, which was a lot of fun. He thought it was so great to look at all the fish. And then afterwards, we did have a an informal conference dinner. And I brought him to that as well. And yeah, he basically just got, you know, passed around to all the, all the people at the, at the dinner. People were, were taking pictures with him and it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, of course, you know, we did have to leave early because he got cranky, but that was fine with me. And it was actually at that conference uh, where I had a conversation with my now postdoc advisor um, and he offered for me to come for an interview here at Notre Dame. And so a month after that, I came out here for the interview. And, you know, it just, it just didn't made sense. We were, we were still breastfeeding at that point. And so I just, I kind of knew that I wanted to bring my son with me. And so uh, my mom and my mother-in-law who both live in New York uh, made the seven hour drive out to meet us here and then watched him while I interviewed for that day. So that ended up working out really well. That sounds really amazing that the, you know, that the grandmas were able to come and mm -hmm. spend some, they were probably really excited that you were bringing him at least within driving distance as compared yeah. to having to get on a long flight. Did you have other, did you have a lot of interviews? Uh, did you have other experiences as well? Or was that the only interview that you did where you brought him along? Yeah, that was the only in-person interview I had. I had a, a couple others that were phone interviews. Okay. Um, but that, that was the only in-person one that I had. So that sounds like a pretty positive experience at the conference where people were excited about about the baby. And sometimes I get that, too, that they're really, you know, that they love like watching kids doing their thing or whatnot. But you did mention in one of your emails that you had a fear that having children might make you seem less dedicated to scholarship, which is something we've also talked a little bit about on the podcast. Do you feel that that fear was warranted? Like, do you have some experiences that weren't so positive or encounters where people gave you the sense that they thought less of you because you had family? You know, I, I really haven't had any negative experiences like that, but I somehow just still have that fear and I don't really know yeah. why. Yeah, pretty much all of, all of my experiences have been really positive. You know, at first I was I was really nervous to tell my advisor that I was pregnant, but uh, she was she was incredibly excited and supportive, and you know she helped organize my baby shower. Yeah, so every every experience I've had has been really positive, but I still kind of have that fear. And you know, in the the phone interviews that I mentioned, I purposely made it a point not to mention anything about having family, just because I didn't want that to affect 
you know, their, their decision making in that sense. Right. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it would have affected their decision or not. I didn't end up getting those positions anyway. At least I mentioned that she made a point in her interviews to avoid that topic and to ship around that topic and to not wear her wedding rings when she went to, to job interviews and things like that. And we actually had um, somebody who listened to that episode reach out to us afterwards and said, you know, that would be that's an interesting question and an interesting thing to think about. Uh, now, obviously, I'm outside of academia somewhat with working with a publisher, but I, when I went through my job interview process, I had, I mentioned this, I had an informational interview at the press that I work at now uh, quite a few months before I got my job, and I was able to put everything out on the table, uh, and and I just kind of told the my my future boss my entire life story, and I mentioned that I had two kids, and so once that came around, I knew that they were aware of that, and that I knew that you know she had kind of talked me through what their policies were and where the flexibilities were, and so I felt that I felt really good about having put that on the table because I started another job for a couple of weeks before I then transitioned into the one that I have now. And I was never able to mention it in the interview that I had kids because I felt that you weren't supposed to do that. But then I was really, I very quickly got very nervous about how I was supposed to be handling things like sick kids and, and school closings and holidays where, you know, our kids, daycares are closed way more frequently than most businesses are. And so that's still, I think, an interesting question that we could pursue more, you know, at some point. I don't know if people, if either of you have thoughts on that today, but I just know that that's something that some of our listeners are thinking about too, just to the question of how to handle our families and our kids in job interviews, because there is sort of this sense that you're not supposed to mention it, but I'm not convinced that that's always particularly useful. I just wanted to throw that out there since you brought that up today. I think that's a great point that warrants more research. And I'm all like, hmm, let's do a mixed media cross-disciplinary study because I find that fascinating because I'm wondering if it is just social norms and ideologies and what does happen. Like, why should I have to hide a very important part of myself? I can't say that I did on this interview, but I do remember starting graduate school and not wanting, I told you this already, not wanting to be like the mommy student or not wanting that to be the only part of my identity that the rest of my classmates and cohort knew about me. And this was probably even before I met you, Judith. Um, it was a little bit earlier. I had a class. It was an American lit class. And then I remember telling people and it was like the big reveal and they're like, oh, weird. You have kids. Yeah, and that was weird. kind of, yeah, you know, and so I think that kind of proved why I didn't bring it up in the first place because right. they were, you know, they had kind of seen me, I was just as myself and whatever that is. But then it's just like so much of our identity then becomes wrapped up in this idealized version, I guess, of mother or what that means. And so I don't know. I think there's a lot to unravel and think about there because that's like three or four of us that have made that conscious decision. We're all extremely intelligent women. We all have everything on our CV and our experiences to back up why we should get that job. But like, why would we all kind of have maybe that reticence? I will say, though, I've had really good experiences with having my children around. I was thinking of my own daughter. Um, it was my third daughter. She was about nine months old, still nursing. And so she came to a trip with me uh, to Concord or Concord, as they say at Massachusetts, 
to study literature. And it was the same thing. Like you said, Danielle, she was just the hit. Like everyone was like, who is that beautiful baby? And this daughter is like very laid back and very placid all the time. But it was a great experience. And then I remember um, bringing a couple of them on little field trips. We had gone to the Detroit Institute of Arts with our postmodern class. And that was, I thought, pretty acceptable. I was like, look, we had to do this for class. Um, we went on a Saturday and I said, I have to bring my baby. Uh, she has to come with me. And no one balked. In fact, I felt pretty supported. So I guess there's a lot more to think about is all I'm saying. And I would love to maybe take this um, from a research perspective. And I don't know what that looks like. Um, but I know from doing this podcast, there are some other really awesome like Facebook groups. One of them, I believe, is called PhD Mamas. Um, actually, a few people are doing a study on that very topic. And so I filled out the survey of thinking about women in the academy across the disciplines and how supported they feel. So don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I'm very passionate about this. And I think it's odd that many of us have felt this need to sort of conceal, at least in some way, shape or form, our connections to our kids. Yeah, but I think it's also really revealing that what Danielle is saying, and I've had the same experience, that we still have this internalized fear that people are going to think less of us. Right. But that's but we're not really having very many experiences that confirm that. And right. I'm not, there might be, you know, a lot of other, there might be a lot of listeners out there that have other stories to tell. But I do feel that the conversation around that is shifting a little bit. There's a lot of awareness more about that now. And we're sort of talking more loudly about these things to make ourselves heard. But I do think that a huge factor, and Danielle, you mentioned that too in your email, is the lack of female role models. It, that tends mm -hmm. to still be the case, right? And I think, Erin, you and I probably felt the same way a little bit when we were in grad school, where it just started it really in that decade that we were at Wayne that grad students started having more kids and so or more of the grad students started having kids and there wasn't really a conversation around it until you know until more and more of us started doing it and so I think maybe some of that fear comes from the fact that there aren't people to look up to that there's still we're still the first ones having to figure out how to do it and then, but now the conversation around that whole topic is shifting a little bit. Danielle, I know that in, at least in my children's school, there is a real move to incorporate and market STEM or even STEAM fields to females and to female students in particular. Do you feel like you did? I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of great support. Are there or were there other female role models? Um, were there people that you looked up to that not only were women in the sciences, but women that maybe had children? Because I felt supported, but at the same time, I know a few professors had children, but did you feel like you had any female role models with children in the sciences? Yeah. So uh, my PhD advisor actually has three children. That's great. Um, yeah, so she was she was very excited when I I told her about the pregnancy and actually there was there was one day I was still on maternity leave um, but the department was in the process of hiring a new faculty member and one of the candidates had asked uh, to come they asked him to come for a tour and he had asked for some of the grad students to come and give presentations so that he could you know see what kind of research we were doing and you know just get to know some of the grad students. And so my advisor asked me to come in 
actually during my maternity leave and give this little five minute presentation on my research. And she was like, yeah, you can come bring your son. I'll watch him. I'll babysit. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, she, she was definitely very supportive. And uh, even with that, you know, a, a lab is not a safe place for a baby to be. Uh, but I was able to bring him in occasionally if we had meetings or something and, you know, if he was sick or I had to pick him up early from daycare or whatnot. Um, so that was also really helpful. But one thing that I did notice is that although there were several uh, female professors who did have children, none of them actually had children while they were in grad school. They had children, you know, after their careers were somewhat established. So I feel like that's a bit different in a sense that kind of made me a little bit, a little bit less confident in, in my, in myself, I guess, just because I hadn't seen anyone that had, you know, successfully had children in grad school and then went on to establish a career. That's a really valid point. And I think that points again to the idea of working mothers, working women, that there's been this dialogue around when to have the children and planning it out. I didn't really plan it out, so to speak. So it just kind of happened when it did, and I'm glad it did. But I think that plays out in other careers where I have other relatives who are high-ranking executives in their fields and kind of took their 30s to build their career and then at 40 decided to start trying for a baby. And so I think that some of the professors I do know at our college that had children, I think that was the same pattern as well. Like they had already completed a lot of their work and had a tenure track position and then got pregnant. So I think that is worth bringing up as well. And we've sort of talked about that a little bit here, but when is the right time? Or maybe that's even another episode as well. Like when is the right time? How do you work your way around child planning and things like that? I think that's a really good point you brought up. Yeah, I agree with that. That's something that I've still that I still think about a lot too and I do think that the timing in grad school it does lead to more women leaking out of the pipeline. I think we talked about that in that one episode and that there was some research to back that up. But for my I can say for myself that it does help or it did help making the choices the way that I did did help me figure out what's most important to me. And I think we've seen with Elisa that it's still very, very possible to build a career if you have kids in grad school, but it also does force you to really consider where your priorities are and how much you're willing to put into it. And that's probably different for everyone. Right. And kind of having, I would say, realistic goals and knowing that sometimes are just going to be really stressful and challenging they just are, you know, there's just going to be, Danielle, you're talking about breastfeeding and pumping. And I just remember those times and just feeling a little stressed out and anxiety ridden. And of course, now it's all hindsight. But I think just being realistic that there will be some challenges along the way makes a lot of sense to consider if anyone's still thinking about having kids right now and is in graduate school for sure. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about toxic productivity, we talked a little bit about um, the need to have certain self-care non-negotiables in place to help us navigate all of the different challenges and all of the different tasks that we have to do. I was wondering if there are any non-negotiables that you have on your list or if there's anything that you like to do for fun or any hobbies that you have that help sort of balance the challenges that we have from being parents and being academics. I guess my non-negotiable would be like what Aaron said is you know, taking a shower, 
I, w- I was told that same thing when my son was a newborn. Oh, you're, <laughs> right. you're not going to have time to shower. And I was like, no, I, I need to shower. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's definitely one for me. For, for fun, I really enjoy crocheting, um, especially now that we're getting into the fall months. So that it, that's kind of my, my creative outlet right now. Usually, you know, once, once my son is in bed and everything's quieted down, I'll just, I enjoy, you know, just putting on a show and crocheting for a little while before bed. So that's, that's mostly what I do for fun. That's a really good way to wind down, just to keep your hands busy without, mm-hmm. you know, some, some sort of like automatic motion with your hands that keeps you, keeps your hands busy, but also it doesn't require a ton of focus. I imagine I have never crocheted before, to be quite honest, but I've seen my mom do it and it just seems very sort of like, like an automatic motion of the hands. Side benefit too, we were just talking about healthy eating. I think occupying my hands with something like I used to do cross stitch and embroidery. So like having something in my hands that's not a snack might mm-hmm. actually <laughs> hey, there's our hack for the episode. You did um, you know, keeping your hands busy at night that actually probably would be really good for avoiding those salty snacks that sometimes yes. you seem to make their way to my hands while I'm watching a Netflix show. Well, I think it's been a really awesome conversation, Danielle. I'm just very pleased that you reached out to us. That means so much. And I'm really happy that you're able to share your experiences here. And I'm, I am I think it's really neat to kind of think about how there are similarities and differences across the fields and disciplines. And I'm really hopeful we can continue this conversation over the upcoming months. And maybe this will spark some more conversation with people around the world as well. If anyone out there wants to reach out or learn more about you and your research, Danielle, uh, is there a place that they can find you on Instagram or social media if you'd like to share that? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at postdocmama, all one word. And if people want to find more about my research, I'm on Google Scholar under Danielle C. Hutchison. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to be looking you up right there. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. I'm going to have to look into that too. Well, thank you, uh, Danielle, so much again for coming here today and talking to us today. I'm really, I really enjoyed sort of continuing some of the different conversations that we've already had over the course of this podcast. Really appreciate that you reached out to us, just like Aaron said. And then once people have looked you up, they can, of course, uh, look us up too. We're also on Instagram where we'd love to continue the conversation. Our handle there is PhD in Parenting. As always, we'd encourage you to um, like, subscribe, review, share us with a friend, anything you could do to give us some feedback and pass on this podcast and join the conversation. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Thanks so much. And until next time, thank you all for listening. 